Hello, and welcome to Catapult Network's Supercharging Innovation Podcast. My name is Jeremy Silver, Chair for this year of the Catapult Network. In this series, I'm talking with some of the UK's top industry and academic leaders, business people and parliamentarians to get their views on the future of innovation. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Dame Ottoline Leiser. Ottoline is the Chief Executive of UK Research and Innovation, UKRI, and Regis Professor of Botany at the University of Cambridge. Prior to this, Ottoline was Director of the Sainsbury Laboratory at the University of Cambridge, which combines computational modelling with molecular genetics and cell biology in the control of plant growth and development. Ottoline has a long-term interest in research culture and chaired the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, a leading ethics watchdog which was described as never shrinking from the unthinkable. And more broadly, she's engaged in work aimed at generating a more inclusive, creative and connected culture. She served as chair of the Royal Society's Science Policy Expert Advisory Committee, chair of the Management Committee of the University of Cambridge Centre for Science and Policy, and is a member of the Prime Minister's Council for Science and Technology. In 2017, she was appointed Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for her services to plant science, science in society, and equality and diversity in science. Ottoline, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So as we've just heard, you have an extraordinary and distinguished career in academia, and you have been Chief Executive of UKRI for just over a year now. Drawing on your personal experience, how have you seen research and innovation culture evolve in the last few years? It's a very interesting question. My interest in research culture started whilst I was very much rooted in academia, where the culture has become increasingly competitive over the years in a very particular way. So I would say it combines competition, which is incredibly focused on the individual. Are you individually performing against some criteria? And then those criteria, I think, have become increasingly narrow. Both of those things, I think, are very unhelpful to creating the kind of collaborative, connected research and innovation culture that we need, because it kind of shrinks your world down to you as an individual. And the criteria that we've typically used, I think, are, as I say, far too narrow, and that tends to kind of crush diversity. And those things together, I think, have, have resulted in the system becoming very siloed, where academics tend to stay in academia, and the interface between academia and the other really important and crucial parts of the research and innovation system, that interface is not sufficiently porous. So it, it, there aren't enough people going between the, the multiple worlds where research and innovation happens. And the concept of research and, and in innovation, in fact, one of the things that I think has been a really interesting conversation over the last few weeks as we've been talking about the new government innovation strategy is a framing of innovation that, that is very what I could consider push-driven. So it starts in academia and pushes wonderful ideas out into some mysterious world of business that does wonderful things with it and turns it into money. When, for me, one of the things I find exciting about innovation is for me, it should start in the other direction. It should start with the identification of the kind of value proposition. How can I make things better? How can I add value? Oh, look, I could improve this process, I could improve this service. And through doing that, I would add all kinds of value. How can I do that? And then you pull through 
all kinds of exciting ideas and, and discoveries from the research base to, to help to deliver that. So when you think about the extraordinary armory that you have at your disposal in, in UKRI, is there a way in which you're looking to, therefore to sort of change that culture within? Is, is there something that UKRI can do about that, do you think? Absolutely, I think there is. At least I, I very much hope there is. Precisely because, as I say, the culture we currently have now is one of very high levels of competition with sharp elbows, which creates, I would say, this kind of homogenization effect and also a, a balkanization. And what we need to do is the opposite. We need to drive diversification right across the system and connectivity. So diversity with collaboration is how you really get the benefit out of diversity. So the fact that we have in our armory this extraordinary range of organizations where research and innovation is happening and different tools to support it and different tools and ways to support the people who are conducting it all of those things thinking of that as a portfolio of levers to create a much more connected innovation and research system where ideas and people move much more freely that's very much the, the way I see we have to go. And I'm very excited to see things like the government innovation strategy and the government people and culture strategy, both led by Bayes, very much supporting that idea of much greater connectivity and collaboration across the system. Let's come back to what you were just saying about this sense of push and pull, because I think it's, it's a really interesting tension. And, and um, certainly in the, in the work of the catapults, I think we see it all the time. There's that sense on the one hand of the real importance and almost sanctity of blue sky research, the real the need to be able to allow people to just go off into the wide blue yonder without a necessarily a clear sense of the destination and to make extraordinary discoveries along the way, as opposed to that more directed research agenda, which, which some industry sectors are, are better capable of addressing than others. And then I suppose a bit further along, there's also that need to try and drive adoption and, and innovation of new technologies within industry itself. Do you have a sense of how we get that balance right and whether we have we got it right at the moment, do you think? To me, the, the sort of defining point to start answering that question is that we currently invest 1.7% of GDP in research and innovation in this country which is well below the OECD average, which is 2.4%. And the government has set a target of 2.4% by 2027. And that's the average. And here we are seeking to be a, a science superpower. And our target is to become average in a few years time, which I find a little, um, it would be nicer, I think, if we were aiming higher. And in fairness to the government, I think they are aiming higher, but we have to pass through average to become above average. So I'm not complaining about that target in principle. That is important to the answer to your question about how the, the funding and the effort and the consideration should be considered across those TRLs, because whilst you're investing 1.7%, if you took money out of that Blue Skies Discovery um, end to put further along the TRL spectrum, the whole thing would collapse. On the other hand, if we are driving up to 2.4% and 22 billion and beyond, then I think there is very widespread consensus that the biggest share of that needs to go into driving that connectivity between the blue size discovery research base where we are clear world leading to bring that extraordinary fuel to in kind of inject into the innovation rocket that we already have. We have fantastic companies innovating brilliantly, just creating that much better joined up ecosystem so it can all happen more efficiently and effectively. And we can get over that scale up 
hump that we seem to get stuck at so often. I, I, I think that's crucial. So new money, I think, towards those higher TRLs and into considering adoption and diffusion and, and scale up, but absolutely not at the expense of the existing world-class research base that we have. And is that going to come, do you think, this year? With everything, so. with everything else the government has to, has to contend with? Obviously, in the light of the pandemic, the economy is incredibly constrained. There are really good causes that need public money. Um, the argument that we will be making strongly is that this is investment. This is investment for the future of the UK. If we don't invest right now at this time, post-pandemic, when we have the opportunity really to turbocharge an innovation-led economy, a properly inclusive innovation-led economy that everyone across the country can participate in and benefit from, if we don't do that now, we will slip further behind in the context of national productivity and growth and all of those things. And so we will not have then the public revenue to pay the nurses in the future. To me, it's a bold investment, but it's really a very wise investment that we need to make now. And that, that's the case we'll be trying to make, whether we win it or not, I'll see. And you mentioned earlier the sort of the sense of different tools, different intervention types, different approaches, which, which kind of address these different areas of blue sky or directed research or, or, or technology push. We also have a very wide range of institutions that deploy those, those tools. Do you have a sense of whether we're getting the mix right? I mean, do, do you think that we're as smart as we could be in the way that we're using those, those tools, do you think? So again, I think for me, the answer to that question is about portfolio diversity with collaboration and, and connectivity. That's a kind of mantra of mine. And I think that that diversity of institutions is really important. I think the catapults, for example, um, play a really crucial and unique role. There are no other organizations that do what catapults do. I'm particularly fond of them because of this connectivity that they bring to the system. On top of that, there are you know, a range of public sector research institutions that have a range of functions, either from you know, Blue Skies research right through to fulfilling very particular um, national capabilities that are important. And then, of course, we have a fantastic university system. And within that, there is a huge diversity, which, I, again, I think we need to kind of unleash and let thrive and grow rather than trying to assess them all on the same criteria. And so for me, yeah, absolutely thinking very intelligently about whether we have the right mix. Are they properly funded and supported that we tend to stretch things as thin as we can for obvious reasons, but that causes real problems because then the institutions can't deliver and perform as well as they should. And are they locally embedded in ways that are working synergistically with their local economies and local environments to really support leveling up and that local economic growth through which we can gain the national productivity drive that I think we're all looking for? It's really interesting this, isn't it? Because we have such a sort of varied landscape and, it, and it's very complicated and a lot of people have a great deal of difficulty navigating it, particularly businesses who are trying to find the right level of support, just the right point of contact. I'm just wondering, do, do you think, you know, in terms of sharing what works and what doesn't and, and really understanding what the rich mix of this landscape is, is there more that we need to do, do you think? Is that something that UKRI can do something to address? Absolutely. There is an increasing amount of work now, both in the context of innovation and what kind of interventions really support the kind of innovative 
economy that we're after. And also on the research end, what kind of interventions in research really support the portfolio of research activity that we need, not just the completely wild and free blue sky stuff, but as I'm very fond of saying, groundbreaking, which is a an analogy that comes from building, it's very good. But if all you do is go into fields and break ground, you never get any buildings. So (laughs) we definitely need to support that full range of research activity as well. And and how you do that, how you create an ecosystem that really provides that stable resilience that we need, it's it's key. And there is an increasing amount of research. And there's a research on research institute at Sheffield I've also um, spent some time in the past with people like Owen O'Sullivan and the Institute of Manufacturing in Cambridge. They do a fantastic job really trying to understand what works and what doesn't in a cultural context. That's the other thing. It's very easy to point at another country and say, oh, look, we need one of those because they've got one and they're good. Um, because it's a system, you need to think about the whole system, what you've got already and how you move it to, to where you want to be. Absolutely behind UKRI being involved in asking those questions and trying to tune our amazing system to deliver even more. You mentioned the catapults earlier and, and, and you spoke very eloquently at the House of Lords inquiry into the catapults uh, about how you see their role contributing to, to levelling up. But I'm sort of interested beyond levelling up, what do you think the catapult network contribution should and could look like over the next five years? Well, obviously they have their really important sector-specific roles. So fundamental to a catapult is kind of de-risking that middle ground and allowing nascent industries access to that kind of um, capability in a way that they would find it difficult to as standalone individual industries. So I think that's those sector-specific roles are obviously core to, to the role of catapults. The thing that I think is really growing in the catapult network that I'm very excited about is, is a much broader considerations of skills agenda. I would flag both the amazing apprenticeship programs that quite a number of catapults are now running. I think they're fantastic for all kinds of reasons, including the leveling up reason, but also actually a little bit that de-risk for industry because you're simultaneously generating the skills that will support those industries to develop in those new and, and different directions. I would zoom out on that a little bit too, in that I think one of the key things that we lack in our system are high quality careers for those bridging people, for people who have one foot in academia and one foot in business or one foot in research and one foot in innovation. And those people, I think, providing more visible, valued, defined roles and skills and training for those people is crucial. And that's, again, very much a thing that catapults are doing, perhaps actually less and they're making less fuss about it and song and dance about it than they could, because I think really celebrating those people is extraordinary. It's certainly interesting. We definitely have people who are quite adept at jumping back and forth between mm. um, speaking a research language and engaging in very high level academic research and then being able to address industrial need as well. Yeah. The more technical you get, the more challenging that, that bridging that gap is. There's no question about that. Moving on, though, you mentioned earlier that the challenge of, of really understanding how effective we can be and how effective we are. And I think everyone agrees, particularly in the world of innovation, it's difficult to understand how best to evaluate the impact. I mean, I always tend to sort of think of it as a bit like the old marketing person's adage, which was, you know, I know that 50% of my marketing works, I just don't know which 50% it is. Uh, and I wonder whether you, you know, in a sense, I mean, actually, marketing, of course, has, has moved on. Market has 
particularly use the internet and direct relationships with end users to really understand the data that can demonstrate what works and what doesn't in a way that is now increasingly effective and, and very, very targeted. Have we got something to learn from that, do you think? Are we in the right place when it comes to understanding impact? And, and do we jump too quickly to sort of, you know, mechanistic measures? I think that's a really important question that actually loops back right to our first question about how you measure research output in the first place and the, the, the rules for winning these competitions, for example. Because I think we have tended to go for the things that are easy to measure, which are actually proxy measures for what we're really interested in. And then the things you can measure become the real measures and then you cause all kinds of perverse incentives and actually undermine the very things you're trying to support. So I think picking the right things to measure is really important. And I think then you come up with problem because what you're interested in measuring tends to be quite a downstream event, a long way away from the intervention that you're making. And so making that connection, that causal connection between the two becomes extremely challenging to the point that the validity is questionable, I think. So I think our real and very sensible desire for KPIs, we have to be really careful about. And I think always using a mixture of the quantitative things that you can measure, along with more qualitative things, as you were describing in the marketing context, is really important. And also um, using a mixture of those leading and, and really lagging indicators is very important. And I think that there's a multi-scale issue as well. The big things we're trying to increase, national productivity, the effectiveness of our public services, those kinds of things. But there are, of course, small things as well, you know, local job creation. There's a lot of interesting work in the context of adoption and diffusion, for example, you know, scraping web adverts, looking at which companies are seeking to employ which sorts of people. So that there are quantitative measures you can capture reasonably straightforwardly and they all feed in but you need to make sure that those are part of a balanced scorecard of measures that is really allowing you to get a feel for how the system's working and then that I think would be another key lesson for me it, it's a system and you're always working with a portfolio and uh, I think lots of comparisons with economics and investment portfolio management is very important because we tend at the moment to ask for an individual investment, whether it's doing an individual thing. And I don't think that's a sensible question. It is really challenging when a lot of the impact that you would expect if you were trying to make impact at a sector level is, is you know, it happens over numbers of years. Yep. And of course, we tend to have a political agenda which wants to operate in a much shorter time frame than that. I, mean, is, I, I agree. Do you think we can do anything to overcome that? Or is that just the nature of the world we live in? I think there are things we can do. So I think as with a large number of things in life now, um, what we're interested in doing is using these multiple levers, as you say, these diverse inputs or whatever, to tune quite a complex system. And that's hard for people to get their heads around. That's improving. That situation is improving because so many of the things we need to shift now are in that box. So lots of interest in net zero all of the kinds of things we have to move to deliver this huge reconfiguration of our economy, they're all interconnected in extraordinary ways. And people are beginning to understand that you, there isn't a silver bullet. There isn't one thing. There are so many different things you have to do in a way that connects up. So that thinking about things in that more systemic way is beginning to emerge politically as a dominant narrative, which is very exciting. And I think gives us the opportunity to think about 
the kinds of things we're talking about, interventions in the research innovation system in that more sophisticated way. And then the other massive um, win is that you can take that complexity and illustrate it so powerfully with particular examples. And the one um, that is so obviously in people's minds at the moment is uh, the vaccine development where all the things we've been talking about, all of them over the, the last you know, half hour are the illustrations of, the, of those things. They're, they're you know, years of investment in blue skies research, investment in, in really quite out there innovation as to how you might deliver that into a value add functional product, linking into manufacturing and supply chain dynamics, right through to the regulation that goes with how you um, test a new product in an effective and efficient way through to deployment across the whole system, through to the volunteer standing outside the GP in the high-vis vest showing you where to go to get the thing in your arm. <laughs> that whole systems thing, I think, is so clear in people's minds now. We're at a great moment to say, yes, it sounds complicated, but look what it can do and look how you can relate to this particular part of it as an individual, as a company, as a nation. That is so interesting to, to make that analogy and to draw it so widely across the breadth of what we've been discussing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that, of course, is encapsulated in the new innovation strategy that's just been published, which you, you mentioned before, and it's just come out in the last week or so. And obviously, UKRI has had an enormous contribution into the writing of that strategy. What do you think are the, your priorities when you, when you look at what it contains and what do you want to take forward from there to actually start implementing it? What are, what are the sort of the, the key headlines for you? So it is very exciting to have the strategy. For me, what UKRI absolutely uniquely can bring, because we reach all across the disciplines, all across the sectors, all across those many diverse organisation types that are conducting research and innovation, we can really drive the connectivity element, I think, both in terms of supporting much more effective join up between the discovery research base and business, but also within the business community, providing that single front door so that businesses can navigate that complex landscape more easily, can access the support that they need in a more um, obvious way. So what I, I would like us to be is that focal point, I suppose, node in the system that helps the whole system work effectively and efficiently um, by joining up all of those many and wonderful dots. You mentioned the breadth of it. The strategy itself doesn't talk very much about the individual needs of individual industrial sectors. And slightly obliquely, the industry sort of makes, makes an appearance in the, in the family of technologies, in as much as there are some references to some industries there, although in a slightly sort of oblique way. It doesn't really have a sector focus or prioritisation. So what, what's your sense from an industry point of view, from a business perspective? How do you think that individual businesses and in industrial sectors should respond to that? The individual sector strategies are continuing to merge. So there's a new life sciences vision, for example, that was published a couple of weeks ago now. There's a space strategy on the way out into the real to the world soon. So there are individual sector strategies emerging. And then I think there is a feeling that the call for missions in the innovation strategy will be met over a slightly longer time frame than the, the framework under which we, we put together, working very closely with Bayes and all kinds of colleagues, very much led by Bayes, the innovation strategy itself. I think some more sector focus in the form of these missions will follow in due course, particularly, I think, in the context of the 
new office for science and technology strategy that's being set up in the cabinet office and i think that central government leadership is really valuable if you are making really high level strategic choices about focus in the nation then um, having that central leadership is really important so that the policies can be joined up across all the different government departments to align as they are beginning to do for net zero to deliver on these major national goals I was going to ask you about that because at the same time as uh, within the sort of same time frame, we've had the announcement of the new Council for Science and Technology and then the new enhanced Office of Science and Technology Strategy Advisory, as, as well as the announcement of ARIA as well. I just wondered, and UKRI sits in the midst of all of that as well. How do these all intertwine? How do they work together? Because uh, from the outside, some of us might look at this and, and feel a little unsure. The National Science and Technology Council, that's the prime ministerly chaired council, which the Office for Science and Technology Strategy will serve, that unit, which is a kind of central number 10 type unit. To me, that's actually the last remaining recommendation of the Nurse Review, which is, as you will recall, the implementation of which led to the formation of UKRI in the first place, bringing together the disciplinary research councils with Research England, which supports the universities in England, but collaborates with the equivalent bodies in Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland. And of course, Innovate UK as the, as the business facing element. So bringing those things together to create a stronger interface out to the research and innovation community, but also into government. And then there was supposed to be or recommended a really high level ministerial committee to embed that key strategic thinking about research and innovation right across government. And National Science and Technology Committee, I think, very much fulfills that role. It's a very high level role. Its job is not to say this grant should be funded or (laughs) this catapult should be funded. It's much more high level strategy about how the nation should focus the efforts that it has from the point of view of, of strategic advantage and national security and all of those really important things, as well as, of course, our our economic growth. And so really thinking at that level in a way that then depends on organisations like UKRI to ensure that that strategy can be delivered and and enacted. But it's it's a very high level strategy, I view it, and very much about cross-government join up. Where does industry insert itself into that conversation, do you think? Is, Is industry represented on the council, for example? The Full membership of the council is, as far as I know, not yet published. It's chaired by the prime minister and the key ministers from the relevant departments will be present. And so I would hope that those ministers would have strong relationships with industry across the board, that particularly the industries are relevant to their particular remits. So one would hope one would get feed in that way. There has been discussions about um, additional membership to that council, which would include UKRI, but um, also a small number of thought leaders from key sectors where industry obviously is is crucial. But as I say, that's ongoing. Still a work in progress. It's still a work in progress. I have not seen the final format of what that will look like. But you're absolutely right. It's essential that that, um, industry is fully understood on these structures. There's also within the existing Government Office for Science, Science and Technology Insight function that's being built up to scan the horizon much more actively and proactively. And again, deep industry engagement in that's going to be really important to make sure that really there is a really good understanding of what the opportunities are at any one, one moment. So I think that's uh, crucial. 
you're about to talk about ARIA as well. Yeah, so where does yeah. ARIA fit in? So if that's a really high level committee talking about cross-government strategy and being ARIA is almost the opposite to me. It, it's um, it's the, the kind of wild and free thing over here that's able to experiment with different ways of funding research and innovation, different ways of even thinking about the system, taking, you know, it, it's small, it's agile, it's people who think divergently in the in the cognitive sense not you know <laughs> in any kind of pejorative sense you really think broadly and differently trying to yeah identify those opportunities for making transformative differences in any sector it's very open at the moment very much will be up to the the director how and in what direction it's taken as i say i see it as the kind of the wild card almost both of those organizations will critically depend on having a really healthy and vibrant research and innovation system in which and through which to work aria can't work without that system the osts and the national Science and Technology Council will obviously not be able to enact any of its policies without that full system, business, academia, independent research institutes. And I very much see it as the job of UKRI to support that vibrant, creative system in any way we can to, to invest the large amounts of public money we get to create the system um, that can deliver for the UK. So we're, we're nearly at the end, but we started and you made a, a number of references at the beginning of our conversation to diversity and inclusion. And in your UKRI blog, you've, you've written passionately about your desire to see innovation and research open up to being more diverse and inclusive. Personally, as a working mum in a world that's still quite male dominated, I, I just wonder what would you say to the younger generation to make their journeys smoother and to create a, a future that's more open to equality, diversity and inclusion? You can look at this through a variety of different lenses and I try to precisely because you need to from a diversity point of view so I think there are uh, to start with at some level research and innovation is massively diverse not necessarily in the colors of the skin of the people working in it but the roles available the opportunities the just extraordinary very exciting range of things and it's not all boffins rattling test tubes there are extraordinary range of jobs UK is running the 101 Jobs that change the world campaign at the moment where that's trying to illustrate the extraordinary breadth of roles there are core to research innovation that are not being a researcher or an innovator. So there is a, a place for everyone to deliver these extraordinary benefits for society by joining in with the research and innovation agenda. So that's kind of one element. You just got to think about the system as, as the full system, which can support a huge range of skills and talents, needs a huge range of skills and talents. You know, if you go to the other end, the more kind of classical, almost EDI approach, there, I think, for me, the, the key, it actually comes a little bit down again to our obsession with a small number of performance indicators, we have mapped out in our mind that the career path for a researcher or an innovator, you do this, then you do this, then you do this, you demonstrate you're successful at those things. And then, you know, and that is incredibly constraining to a system that needs people with actually a much wider range of backgrounds and skills and talents. And so I think we need to think really hard about the way in which we assess researchers and innovators at all points in their careers and throw away the lists of papers you've published or the lists of, I mean, that, that kind of narrow set of 
assessment is really unhelpful for supporting people who've been at the call face in some kind of practice-based profession. They've really extraordinary understanding of what's needed and, and what can make a difference. And that person then thinks, oh, I would really like to do a PhD on really trying to understand exactly as you were saying earlier to research what works in this area, for example. And they show up at the university and their A-levels were 10 years ago and they were in some completely other topic. You know, we've got to find a way to welcome those people with their extraordinary ideas and creativity and different ways of thinking about things into the system because that difference is really what creates the extraordinary innovative outputs that we need. There's really good evidence that diversity is necessary for the range of creativity that we need. I am completely obsessed with it <laughs> because I think it's key to, to our success. And it, it's about freedom. It's about trusting ourselves more, I think, to take the risks and, and to work with that wider range of people who will challenge us more um, rather than just kind of huddle together for warmth, clutching our certificates or degree certificates. It's incredibly refreshing to hear you talk like this. And, and it does feel to me that we're facing problems of a kind and that we've never faced before as a, as a species. And our planet mm. is in such a precarious state that it seems obvious that we've, we've got to find new ways of looking at problems and new sorts of solutions. And is, is this part of it, the sense for you of, of bringing more fresh brains? Absolutely. It's one of the things that if you're in a research environment and your whole kind of MO is about going to places where no one's ever been before, you have to think of, if you kind of go back to the science superpower, <laughs> quite reminded of some of those kind of superhero movies where you want to have, you know, multiple people with the different special powers to go with you to fight the enemy of the unknown rather than having to go all by yourself. <laughs> and, um, I mean, that that is very much how I see it. Makes that, perfect sense to me, I have to say. We're nearly at the end, so I, I've got one final question that I always ask I guess it's very, very interesting to get the reply. But we've talked a lot about innovation and, and how important it is. But what's your favourite innovation? What's my favourite innovation? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> I'm going to do the opposite, OK? So the way I think about innovation is to do with this value add. You identify something that needs, a, you know, an, an innovation to make things better. And that proves the world around you and also can start a highly successful business and so on and so forth. And the example I like to pick, because it's very simple and everybody knows about it, you probably know about it too, is if you wear glasses, the little screws that hold the things onto the lenses, they're dreadful. They come loose and they come out. And most people who wear glasses have to carry around a baby screwdriver with them to screw it back in again. Why? Why hasn't somebody fixed that problem? <laughs> and you could make a fortune out of that. <laughs> so that's an innovation that hasn't happened yet that is on the way. And I guess, you know, I, I, I use that slightly differently because that's the point, really. There's a huge range from tiny little things that just would make a little bit of difference to everybody's lives to huge, you know, how do we capture CO2 effectively from the atmosphere? How do we cure, you know, horrendous diseases? How do we create a more equal society. I mean, huge questions where you want solutions down to the little screws in people's glasses. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a brilliant and precise way to end our conversation. Thanks so much. I feel uh, that we could have carried on talking much longer, but, but thank you so much for joining us this week, Ottilene Liza. And thank you for sharing all your views on the future of UK innovation and, and the role of UKRI, particularly within it. You're very welcome. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for today's Supercharging Innovation podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us again for the next podcast episode 
and make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify. Other podcast distribution platforms are, of course, also available. Goodbye.